Hello and welcome to Composer Chat, a podcast where we talk a little about music, a little about life, and a whole lot about whatever nonsense happens to come up otherwise. I'm your host, Jason Nitch, and each week I am joined by one of my favorite composers out there in the world. It's my show, so that's why it's my favorite composers who get the invites, and you're just going to have to live with that. Stick around, we're going to do a deep dive with some of the most creative people in the world. You're listening to Composer Chat. So, hello everybody, welcome to another edition of Composer Chat. I'm your host, Jason Nitch. Yes, I'm a composer, and yeah, I'm here every week, but each week I'm joined by a guest composer of my own selection, and we'll spend an hour talking about them. And if you've made it through this many episodes of the podcast, you know that it will be with frequent interruption by me. This week I'm real excited to be joined by my good friend and colleague, Robbie Tian. Robbie, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, happy to be here. So, Robbie, for people who may not be as familiar with your work as I am, um, tell people kind of what you're what you're into. What kind of work are you doing? Uh, I've done a lot of things, sometimes so many that it's hard to pin myself down. But um, these days, I am a film composer primarily, and uh, I've worked on some indie films, um, film in Canada that was very well known called Scarborough. And I also spent five years in Hollywood working for a TV composer named Sean Callery. And so I managed to get my minutes on, you know, a lot of network TV shows such as Elementary, Homeland, and uh, Jessica Jones. Um, I also have a singer-songwriter project that I'm working on, and I work as a coach for composers, and I help film composers get their careers to the next level. Awesome. That's great. And so uh, everybody, I encourage you to check out check out Robbie's work. So um, we tend to talk about, you know, kind of composer origin stories here on the podcast. So kind of what's your, what was your entry point into music in general? How'd you get involved in music, you know, period, just growing up? Uh, I was kind of in the, in the sort of school programs. That was my introduction. I had, you know, a really good choir teacher when I was in elementary school. And then in high school, I was a tuba player. That became my main instrument for most of my life. And uh, I never really wrote music. I was kind of just sort of an omnivorous, you know, uh, I wanted to just experience every musical thing I could. I was in, in, in classical music choir and jazz choirs. I played trombone and guitar in the, in the jazz bands. And then I went on to study tuba at university. And it was when I was at university that I was in music theory class and we were given little assignments to write short compositions and i was like oh hey this is really fun i seem to be really good at this and i started experimenting with writing little little pieces for choir pieces for brass ensemble because i was in those groups and some of them started you know they, they were successful and that was um kind of the the inclination that i had some talent as a composer the first piece i wrote for choir won uh, an international competition by uh, a canadian chamber choir and that was kind of the the, the moment that i was like oh i think i'm a composer and and uh, so that kind of spurred that along. And I, my first work was in the classical world. And uh, then as I, you know, I was still playing tuba, I got involved in performing and was touring and playing um, both classical music and also like folk and jazz and, and rock and world music bands, all kinds of stuff in Toronto. I was just all over the city doing as much as I could, just experiencing it all. And, and uh, that kind of led me to the film world as a place where I could combine all of the diverse interests I have in all the genres and, and be composing in uh, in a way that was unique and, and personal for me. And so that's where I landed. That's cool. Do you, um, do you ever, uh, do you ever hear that, 
that first choir piece that you wrote, do do people still perform it? Do you ever hear it again? Or I haven't listened to that in a long time. Um, I basically stopped really being active in the classical world, not out of the lack of, of interest in doing so. It's just there's only so many hours in the day, I realized, and I have a tendency to spread myself too thin. And so I, I made some efforts to try to consolidate things. And, and just as a sort of natural process of that, I stopped really being, you know, in the scene of the classical world and, and uh, I stopped kind of getting, taking commissions and, and writing things. And so I don't know, I think uh, some of the work is still in the library of a couple of choirs and, and they may very well perform it every now and then. Uh, but I haven't, uh, I haven't heard in a long time. It was pretty, I'm sure it would trigger some nostalgic feelings if I were to pull up the file and listen to it again. Yeah. Uh, do you like um did you write it specifically for the for the competition or was it something you were working on already or kind of what what was it about gosh i don't remember um but i i think it might have been because i was singing in a church choir professionally around that time too and i might have just been like here here's a text from a i remember it was a text by a, an english poet named george herbert and mm. uh it was just something that was that kind of spoke to me and I, you know, I'm not religious, but I was in a church choir. So I thought well, I can write some church music. And, and so I actually wrote quite a bit of, of music for a church choir, you know, um, just out of a sort of desire to like, well, here's an, uh, here's an avenue I have to get my music performed. And, and, uh, and uh, I found it to be interesting at the time. And, and so I, I remember I did a couple settings of George Herbert and one of them was the one I submitted to the competition. I don't remember if the competition inspired it or if I just saw the competition and thought, oh, I, that piece I wrote might be a fit. Some, it's, it, was, it was over 20 years ago at this point, which I can't believe. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Time, time flies. Yep. Like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let, let me ask you this because I I kind of had a, a similar experience growing up where I, I sort of just, I, I wrote for the groups I was in or I wrote for the groups I was around, who, kind of whoever I could I could wrangle into it. Where did did you find that you were the only person kind of in your, you know, in your area at your college or whatever, were you the only one that was kind of doing that kind of thing? Cause I, I always wonder that it, I was the only person doing it around me. Nobody else was trying to do it. And I, I, so I always thought that it was kind of strange, but I, I hear more and more that that's, that's the same kind of experience that, that other people have. You know, I went to two very good music schools. One was at the university of Toronto and uh, well, that's that's a that was that's a good music school, and then I went to a very good one, which is Indiana University, and I got to know the composers there, and I even studied composition as a just kind of on the side when I was doing a master's in tuba performance at Indiana. I would say there is a mentality among the composition majors that I recall, and it may, I don't know if this is different now because again it was it was decades ago, but people tended to um, focus on kind of developing their voice and their style and then finding, you know, putting an ensemble together or um, trying to find a, a way to get their music performed or, or writing for orchestra and then hoping that would work. And I suppose I had an instinctive, pragmatic approach. I think I knew, um, I don't know how, but I, I seem to just grasp that like music is only music if it's performed. And so the best avenue is to build relationships with people that already have groups and write music specifically for them and for the person and for the opportunity. And yeah, I didn't see a lot of people approaching it that way, but 
if I think back and, you know, if I look around and remember, you know, the people that became very successful uh, that had that approach, they tend tended to go on and, and, and write primarily for, you know, chamber choirs and wind ensemble, because that is a very sort of opportunity driven market in the educational field. Whereas if you were kind of branding yourself as a classical artist composer, it's more about, well, I write for whatever I write for. And then I find a new music ensemble and they go, you know, they find an Arhu and they find an English horn and they find all these <laughs> Chinese gongs and whatever it is. And, and so it's, it's kind of a different approach. And, and I was definitely more in the, well, I want to be viable and pragmatic. And so I think if I'd stayed in the classical world, I would have modeled my career after someone like Eric Whitaker, you know, who is just writing a lot of choir music and a lot of wind band music because people, are out there commissioning it and want to perform it and, and he had the opportunity you know to build connections with the the directors and the and the leaders of those ensembles and and that those relationships would lead to commissions so it's interesting it's it's kind of a different mentality that leads you into a different market but ultimately my i, I you know like like i said i i, I never felt 100 percent at home in the classical world and so i gravitated towards the film world which again, you know, you're writing specifically for the situation and every film can be a vastly different world of, of composition because, you know, the story might call for different instruments and different, different genres. So that it's a really interesting question. I don't know if I answered it satisfactorily, but um, <laughs> I think, I think the way you approach music does determine the trajectory of your career. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I, what you said is exactly right. Like, you have to write for viable ensemble because if your music's not getting performed, then, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, exactly. Does anybody know who Eric Whitaker is? Um, I think I messed up. I think I messed that saying up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that I always, I always think that's interesting. And then, and then I, you like, like, like you, you did, you did better than me. I, I stayed too long in those ensembles that were, ensembles of convenience i stayed in that lane for way too long and i i shifted very late um in my career and so uh, you were better than me you were probably a better tuba player than me too because i was a terrible tuba oh player. i forgot you were a tuba player well no no i i was not i was not a tuba player um, that's why you're definitely better than me. oh okay well yeah then I'm, you know, I'm i'm better better than anyone that's not a tuba player i would at least yeah. think that but i don't know i don't i don't like to you know when i was a younger person i was really obsessed with being better than everybody i think but these days i i, I think i have a little more awareness of the fact that everyone's path is unique and everyone has a story and it unfolds in the way it's meant to for whatever reason and so you know some people make a move at at an early stage or some people at a late stage and you know, there's no right or wrong or better or worse necessarily. It's it's how you handle it and what you do with it that counts. So, um, so yeah, I guess thanks for saying that you feel like I did better, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you did better. Um, I did not get into Indiana, Indiana, so so you you, you did better than me. Um, I I didn't apply either, so I guess there's <laughs> I guess there's that. Yeah. Um, I can remember though, um, I see all of my degrees are in music ed. I can remember the one time I was looking at, at composition grad programs, being in a conversation with the professor who will go unnamed, who, who flat out told me, you know, and I, I was in my thirties, I've been writing a lot. 
And he flat out told me, he goes, you know, you publish a lot of music and we don't really do that around here. And I kind of went, ah, <laughs> what, interesting. What, that, what does that mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> you write, you, you write music, nobody wants to play. You write music, you, you don't want your students to be able to support themselves while they're writing their music. I, I never really understood the comment, but uh, I also didn't get in there. So I guess it's fine. See, um, who is who is talking in that moment? Was that the professor or was the institutional parasite taking over his body and speaking speaking the just general vibe of like what is acceptable in order to maintain institutional power. You know, that's the question I always have when you get these little vibes from people, it's like, is yeah. that really you or are you just speaking what's in the air? Because there, there's a really weird kind of consciousness that these schools can have in which, Oh, we do it this way. And this is the right way. And this, everything else is the wrong way. And sometimes it's subtle, but then every now and then they'll say it out loud. Like that professor did. And you're like, Whoa, <laughs> that is a strange, like, why is that the way that it is? Because that seems counterintuitive for trying to have a career here. And yeah, but it, it's really, to me, I think, you know, that that's about sort of maintaining the prestige of their approach over all others. Right. Because if you can publish a lot of music and be successful at it, and make money what does that say about the people that are holding these positions that aren't getting their music performed aren't making any money aren't having any success or performance anyway that's a tangent i could write a book on that subject but uh i'll just say i think you did well not to go down that road and, and be in that environment because you would have been subject to that kind of that yeah. sort of controlling energy constantly from the professors that that were threatened by the fact that you were out there putting out music yeah i'm not sure that was the right environment for me anyway um probably not that he probably doesn't remember me. I could invite him on the podcast and just in the middle spring that question on him. So what did you mean back in, you know, 2000, whatever, when I was in your office and you said this? He <laughs> probably won't remember it because that was that was a moment where he was speaking yeah. the institution, the institutional yeah, like, energy. Wait, I said what? <laughs> yeah. What office? Well, that's great. All right. Well, okay. Tan tangent over. We'll, we'll get back on track now. Um, right on. <laughs> so so you know when did you when did you kind of make the the switch the move the transition over to more like film and media writing from kind of that writing that you were doing early on you know there was kind of a watershed moment that i realized that i was going to do that switch and then it took me a few years to kind of execute it but i was I had a, an opportunity to write a, a new orchestral piece for the National Youth Orchestra of Canada. So that was like a, a really major milestone moment for me. And that, uh, and I wrote a piece that was, you know, melodic and it was post-minimalist and driving and, and people loved it. It was called Dreams of Flying. And it went on to get a, a Juno nomination for Classical Composition of the Year, which was, which was the Canadian Grammys. And so... That was like a moment of like, oh, hey, here I am, a new talent on the on the scene. I was maybe 27, but I, I'll never forget that, you know, we were at a performance at one of the major halls in Canada and the conductor was introducing the program and he said, we're going to hear a new piece by, by Rob Tian called Dreams of Flying. And, uh, and then we're going to hear something a little more contemporary. <laughs> Stravinsky's, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And I was like, wait, well, hold up a second. So, so my piece that is two months old, the ink is still not dry, is considered not contemporary. And a piece that is now 100 years old is considered contemporary in this world. You know, and I, and then I spoke with, uh, I met someone that was a, a CBC radio producer and she said, yeah, we really like your piece. I think we could feature it. But you know, that section where you have the, the percussionists kind of clapping a little bit. Yeah. That's probably a bit too advanced for our audience. That's a bit too modern for them. I'm like, Huh. Interesting. So <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not considered 
contemporary, but I'm also considered too modern. And I, I could just feel like the walls closing in on me in the classical world. And I'm like, I don't think I want to go into this this career track because I don't seem to fit here. I, I think I think I'd be much happier writing film music because melody and everyone said, oh, this is cinematic. It's cinematic. It's cinematic. I heard it all day long. Oh, sounds yeah. like a film score. It sounds like Hollywood. And I was like, well, maybe I should go there because that is where the, the, the kind of music I want to write, the stuff that's melodic and, and tuneful and, and driving. And, and I, I don't want to be compared, you know, with, with Stravinsky all the time, you know, that's a losing battle and not to mention Mozart and Beethoven, you know? And, and so it, it seems, seemed to me that like my options, if I stayed in classical music were to become an Eric Whitaker type for the educational market or to become, you know, uh, like a, an avant-gardist because that's where all the opportunities were just kind of captured. Right. And so I just could sense there wasn't really a home for me there, or at least there, there would be, but it would always be a struggle, you know, to write the kind of music I wanted to, because it just, the industry wasn't set up for it. So that was where the seed was planted. I think, I guess, so. yeah, I guess I was around 26 at that point. And, uh, and from there, I started just teaching myself music production and, um, you know, I did some online courses and just kind of figured it out. And, uh, I think I was maybe 28 when I got my first film, which is a short film. And I did a couple of short films and that was where I got my feet wet. But instantly I was like, okay, this is, this is cool. I like this. And I think I've made a good choice. And so, yeah, by the time I was 30, I was pretty set that I was, was going to do film scoring. And then I think I was 31 when I moved to Los Angeles. That's cool. So can you talk a little bit about that, about moving to LA and, and working with Sean Callery? Like how did, how did that all materialize and kind of, kind of what was that like? Yeah, I met Sean when I did a, a workshop in New York and I stayed in touch with him. And then um, I got to do a trip to LA and meet with some composers. And uh, that basically sealed the deal for me when I just saw, um, I think I'm a lot like these people. There's a, a vibe here. These the composers that are working in LA, they're, they're just uh you know, they're, they're, they've got their hands in so many different creative energies. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but um, <laughs> I just kind of felt like this was a place where I could be the, the type of artist I wanted to be. And, and so uh, I got to work on, on moving to LA. I had to get a, a visa, which is really complicated because I'm Canadian. It's, you know, I don't, I, I had to just prove that I was um, an alien of extraordinary ability. They call it if, if to get this particular visa to work as an artist. So, you know, that took me you know, almost a year to get that together. And in the meantime, I was corresponding with Sean and with other people I knew, Sean Callery. And uh, it just turned out, you know, I, I was on, an, I, I took another trip and I, I met with Sean and he sort of said like, hey, I think, I think my assistant might be leaving soon. You know, there could be an opportunity here. Um, if you want some work when you get here, you know, let's, let's talk. And so it just worked out that way that I actually had a job waiting for me essentially on day one when I finally was able to make the move. And uh I got to work as his assistant uh, and he was a very busy TV composer. I learned about all the different ways that he works with. Uh, I learned how to, how to use pro tools at a high level. I learned how to take care of all the audio gear. It was a trial by fire, but um, I'm really nerdy and organized in a lot of ways. So I, I took to that work really well. And I also got a, the opportunity to write um, additional music on a number of the shows he was working on. And uh, we got along really well too. So that turned out to be a five-year apprenticeship. And uh, I only left really because the pandemic kind of pushed me out the door. But um, I think I was ready to at that point. You know, there, there comes a moment when you have to go spread your wings and exist uh, as your own artist. But yeah, that was a really um, amazing chapter of my life because I was being mentored by one of the best composers in, in the city 
And uh, he's a great guy. He was very generous to me as well. And so I was really lucky to get that opportunity and I'm, I'm glad I got to do it. That's, that's so cool. Do you uh, like, have you, have you had that experience where you're like, I don't know, you're watching TV or something and, and one of those shows comes on and you listen and you're like, Oh, I wrote that cue. Um, pretty rarely. I, I don't generally watch the network TV. I don't, I don't have a cable subscription, which is pretty funny. Um, I did watch Netflix and I, I would watch, I watched a little bit of Jessica Jones and uh, that was a show that I did a little bit of writing on. So I got to hear some of my work on, on that. So that was fun. Um, but most of the time, honestly, and, and, you know, most composers will tell you this, like we're, we're too busy to like sit down and watch the episodes when they air. And a lot of times we do the work and then doesn't might not air for another six months to a year. And, and so by the time that's, that's happening, we're, we're just too engrossed in whatever project we're on to, to go back and, and listen and, uh, you know, time marches on and, and moves forward. So uh, I haven't heard much in my work on the shows and um, I think it'd be interesting to hear it, but um but yeah, uh, I just know that it's out there and I think that's, you know, that's a reward in itself, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, you're, you're, I, I had a very similar experience, uh, on my podcast when I was, when I was scoring season two, I had a character that I was bringing back from season one. And so I went back and I, and I listened to their episode from the first season and I literally was listening going, God, I don't remember writing half of this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then like, but some of this is pretty good. Like I'm going to, I'm going to use this theme right here in the next season for this character. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you're, it is kind of like that when you're, especially when you're working on, on some of those big projects, once it's out the door and it's out of your brain, your, your brain's onto the next thing. And you, you don't really, uh, you don't really go back to it. Um, you know, as opposed to my publication works that I hear all the time, um, which is, it's just, it's interesting how that, how different that kind of is. Um, but that's very cool. So, um, let me ask you this. Do you have, uh, that seems very fairy tale. You showed up in LA with a job. That's never how the, how the story goes on like the Hallmark channel. It's always, you get off the bus and you're not sure where you're going. Right. Like, yeah, like that's, that's really great. Do you, do you have, have you ever experienced like, um, do you have like a, like a big rejection story or, or maybe a project you were hoping to get on that you didn't get on or anything like that? Or. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like I should have more. Maybe it's a sign that I haven't been trying hard enough, you know, because if you're not being constantly, constantly rejected, then, you know, how do you know if you're going to succeed? Honestly, I think sometimes you, you get 10 rejections for every success. Sure. But um, I did have an opportunity to, to, to pitch for The Handmaid's Tale and I sent them or I don't, I have no idea if they even heard it, but um, that would have been a really cool gig. I, I know I would have done a really great job on that show and that would have really brought my career to, to a new level. So that I, I would say is if I look back with any regret, I'm like, hmm, I wish, wish that one would have happened. So, yeah, I don't yeah. think I have any big, exciting ones beyond that though. That would have been very cool. The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. I- yeah. I was doing a composer talk one time and they didn't want me to talk about the music. They wanted me to talk about like what it was like being a composer. And I told them, I said, uh, I said, you, you have to have a pretty thick skin and you have to be prepared to be rejected constantly. Yes. Um, and I said, so being in high school was great preparation for, for being a composer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They sort of laughed uncomfortably too, but um, <laughs> you're, you're right. You have to get, you have to get rejected a lot. Um I mean, and it's the same whether you're doing film work or whether you're doing publishing work or anything like that. I have I have more pieces I've written that have been 
rejected by publishers than ones that are out there in the world. So um, that's, that's definitely, it's definitely relevant. Um, you know, other than film things, do you have any like big bucket list projects, you know, that you'd like to do someday? Like, like things that you just keep in the back of your head, like, and it'd be great if at some point I got the chance oh, to do ABC. I mean, I'm working on a bucket list project now, which is a singer songwriter project. And so that's kind of just been growing steadily. I've been doing that for about five years. So uh, we'll see where that goes, but you know, I would love for my songs to become successful and, you know, to get the millions of streams and to get to play, you know, some, some really big festivals or big shows and, and, that might happen in a couple of years. I would also love to score like a really beautiful video game where it's just this like emotional score that people cry every time. And they're just like, yeah, I did music for that, you know? So uh, I don't know if you know the game Journey, that's an example of a, a score that um, really inspired me when I was getting started it's by Austin Wintry. And so I kind of keep that in the back of my mind that like, okay, someday I'm going to get onto a really cool video game project and make this really gorgeous evocative score that, that just touches people's hearts and shows them something about humanity and themselves and all that. So I'm kind of always on the lookout for those. We'll see, you know, you never know where life is going to take you. And um, hopefully I still have plenty of time to do those things. We'll see. I hear there's a new Grand Theft Auto coming out. So <laughs> maybe if the, if the people from Rockstar are listening... Give, give Robbie a call. You could write. I don't know if I'm a fit for that type of game. <laughs> it's not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> there's, there's got to be some kind of real emotional scene in there somewhere that you could, that you could score. I was thinking more of the fantasy worlds. I don't know why. I just oh. kind of drawn into that sort of, that sort of thing. Legend of Zelda. There's a Legend of Zelda sure. movie. I think that's in development. All right. Well, call. maybe I'll go after that. Maybe that'll awesome. be my next, my next rejection story. JJ Abrams, if you're listening. <laughs> Robbie's available. Um, no, that's very cool. Um, do you have some, some of the next little stuff that we'll talk about is more practical. Um, sure. Do you have something uh, that you have purchased hardware, software, anything for like your studio that has totally, once you, once you brought it into your life, completely changed everything for you. Do you have anything like that? Oh gosh. Um, I have so many little pieces of gear and like every little worker bee, you know, plays its, plays its role. I would say that like what's made a difference for me is I moved into a, a space that's really cool and very creative. It's an old village church uh, in a small country village that's been converted to a living space. And now I have like room for all the instruments and microphones and, and it sounds beautiful and the sound is good. It's basically like living in a recording studio. So I would say that's made a massive difference. It's just made me just like live every day as though I'm as though I'm a musician doing great work as opposed to being cramped in a bedroom, like hoping for the day when I would have some room. Mm. So that would be one thing. Um, I would say maybe, um, I don't know. I got a cool microphone by a company called Slate and uh, they, they, they have these microphones that are, they call them virtual modeling microphones. And so um, you, you hook them up and then and you can run a plugin and basically it will imitate any number of really high end expensive mics. And so that's really transformed my recording process because now I have a couple of these slate mics, but it's, it's almost like having like a hundred thousand dollar closet full of really amazing vintage mics and they they kind of get you like 90 percent of the way there to what these mics sound like that are that might cost five or ten thousand dollars to like actually 
actually have. So yeah. that has been definitely a game changer for my my home recording process as well. Cool. So Slate Microphones, not a sponsor of the show, but you yeah, could be. Exactly. If you're listening, I would accept a sponsorship from you. Sweet. Um, or if you want to send either of us some microphones, that would be great. Um, shout out from Robbie. You, yeah. So I, I, I knew that you lived in, um, in an old converted church. Um, any, uh, any weird experiences there? Is it haunted or are there any like, uh, like, like weird sounds in, in the night or anything like that? I, the vibe is actually good. I think it might be, I think it might be benevolent, benevolently haunted by, <laughs> um, by the, by, by the, the well-meaning spirits of the pioneers, you know, that, that lived in this area, settled it 200 years ago. Uh, but yeah, it is strange. Like I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night last night because, um, we had a little bit of snow, like a couple inches and then the temperature raised. So the snow was all melty. And what, what happens, I forgot this happened from last winter, but now I remember that when the snow melts, it slides off the roof. And I, my bed, my bedroom is up in sort of a loft. So I'm near the roof. And so you just hear this tremendous, like of, of snow, just like falling off in, in one giant go. And I, I I can't remember. It was one of those things where you're dreaming and then the sound like intrudes and, and changes the, the context of the dream. And I remember being like extremely confused when I woke up experiencing the sliding snow and, and so, yeah, so that happened last night. And uh, <laughs> sometimes there's mice, something, you know, I had to set some traps and I, I could hear them like, like pittering around in the middle of the night. And uh, that's a thing too. Um so yeah, it's it's been interesting, and when it when it gets windy, the whole building kind of shakes a little bit because it's got like a high profile and a steeple, and so oh yeah, it's a little more vulnerable to wind than like a, a house would be. Uh, but beyond that, it's surprisingly homey and comfortable in here, so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. That's cool. Uh, I love that. There's a there's a great supposedly haunted hotel in uh, in San Antonio that I visit frequently, and I always check in. And I go, can I have the most haunted room there is? And cause I'm like, I just want to see a ghost. I've been coming here 20 years. I just want to see a ghost. And, uh, and one time have I was you checking seen any? in, you know, I haven't, but I, I was checking in one time and I was doing the whole spiel. And, and, and now it's kind of like, I just sort of kid around about it And the, and the, the little receptionist, the you know person at the front desk very seriously was like, listen, you've probably seen a ghost. You just wouldn't know it. It would just look like a person to you. Like I was like, huh. okay, now I'm appropriately freaked out and uh, maybe I'm going to stay somewhere else. No, I love it. Um, uh, if you're into ghosts, the Minger hotel in San Antonio, also not a show sponsor, but, uh, but they could be, I, I visit enough. Um, that's great. Um, well, let me ask you this. Do you ever, you know, I, and I think this is an interesting, you know, different answers I get on this talking to some of my friends and colleagues who kind of work in the publication realm or the concert realm and then uh, the people i've talked to and that are more film and media do you ever get writer's block or get stuck on something you know i i could write a book on this one and a lot of my work as a coach when i when i work with film composers is is on the topic of of writer's block um writer's block is it's not really a thing so much as it is an experience and uh it's almost always emotional. And so when you're blocked, it usually means there's some something going on in your mind that that's that's making it too scary for you to write a piece of music. And so there's there's ways around it. So I, you know, if I'm on a if I'm on a film job, I don't I'm not experiencing blocks 
you know, if I, if I feel like the ideas aren't coming, I have a lot of bags of tricks to, to get them coming, but usually I can, I can come up with ideas pretty well, but sometimes, sometimes I'll experience like almost like a meta block where I'm like, okay, there's a, I, I want to move my career in some direction, but I'm not, I'm having a hard time taking the steps to do it. And that's, that's almost like writer's block on a sort of grander scale. And, you know, it always comes down to emotional work. It comes down to really, you know, figuring out, you know, why, why are you scared to do this? Why are you scared to write a note? Why are you scared to put yourself out there and, and just kind of processing that emotion? And that's usually the answer. So um, I've experienced lots of, of blocks and frustration, but as a professional, we have to find a way through them. And, and so I, you know, I don't accept the language of, of oh, I've, I've got writer's block. Like it's like a cold you can catch or a virus or something. And, oh, nothing I can do about it. I've got it. But no, that's not how that works at all. You're, you're a human being, you're in a body, you have a mind and, and, everybody else experiences these things, but there are people that find a way around it. So, you know, if you're going to do this professionally, you have a responsibility to learn like, okay, what is, how does my system work and where are the clogs and where are the, you know, so I just kind of arm myself like I'm a plumber that's unclogging myself, if that makes sense. Sorry for the gross <laughs> metaphor, <laughs> you know, but it's more like, like the block is more like, it's just more like something in the pipes that got stuck. It's usually emotional energy. Right. So um, it, I, I basically, I, 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 I don't, I don't allow myself to sort of identify with being blocked. I see it as a temporary thing that I'm experiencing and, and that I have a, a, a like a, a capability to solve it. And like everyone that's working as a professional composer understands that, you know, sometimes you might feel blocked, but you can't just allow yourself to, to accept, oh, I'm blocked. I got writer's block. Well, I guess that's the end of the week for me. You know, <laughs> we have to find a way to flow and, and get it moving. And there's lots of things you can do and lots of techniques. So, so that's yeah. what I've, I've done over the years. I don't know how, and I'll go back to the recording to get the exact wording, but I'm going to use uh, like a plumber unblocking myself <laughs> in a song yeah. somewhere. Okay. That's going to happen. Um, that's going to happen one day. You're going to get, a, you're going to get a random link from me and you're going to be like, what is Jason sending me? And then you're going to get two and a half minutes in and that line's going to be there and you're going to be like, Oh, it's that. Mm. <laughs> well, um, you know, for somebody who may be younger, somebody is in high school or somebody that's maybe just, you know, an undergrad that may be interested in in writing, what's some good advice you would give to to them or, you know, like good advice you would have, you wish somebody would have given your younger self? Um, the advice that I really would have used would have been go to therapy earlier <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> my own mental health issues, which is another whole story, um, speaking of blocking and speaking of, you know, frustration and everything like, you know, um, don't see yourself as existing purely in your work. You are a human being and you are complicated and complex and, you know, um, actually going to therapy as an adult was probably the best thing I, I could have done. And, and because I was, I was really defeating myself at every turn when I was younger, because I had, you know, a lot of internalized belief that I, I just couldn't do it or that I was destined to fail. And, and this is common, like a lot of us have these things. And so, you know, a lot of us grow up with anxiety and depression and all kinds of just stuff. But a lot of it's just in the air. We can't help, you know, picking these things up. So the, the number one advice is to take care of yourself and, and become a healthy person, whatever that looks like for you. And, and try to be like, you know, exercise and take care of your body and make that a habit, a lifelong habit. Right. I, I was in the army as a, as a musician. And so I, I'm grateful for that because it sort of set up a fitness for me that, that has kept me alive. I'm falling off the wagon a little bit now, but as a middle-aged person, but I can always kind of get back into that mentality of like, no, I'm, you know, get, find the soldier in me and just 
just find that energy to, to push myself, right? And so that's one, one piece of advice. The second piece of advice is to um, experience music and experience being a musician because being a writer is about speaking a language, right? So imagine that you had a goal of, of writing a great book in, in German, I don't know, or some language, right? And so, and imagine you're going to school and you're studying, okay, I'm going to write in German. Like no one is ever really going to take you seriously. You're never really going to succeed unless you go and live in Germany for a little while and really understand what it means to be German. And then you can speak that language fluently and meaningfully, right? So if you're trying to be a composer, that means speaking the language of music and that means performing and making music, right? So I, I would suggest like you've, you've got to, absolutely got to master an instrument if you're trying to be a composer. And if, if you're not going to master an instrument, master production and recording and engineering, right? But like piano is the obvious choice. Really get great at piano, but not just great at piano for writing and music. Go out and play, join a band, join ensembles, play lots of different kinds of music. Your, your young years are the time to experience the world. And, you know, don't get too attached to an idea of who you are, because that's going to shift as you, as you grow, grow up, right? So I would say like, don't make any long-term plans before the age of 25, just experience uh, what is appealing to you, follow your heart and just let the world show itself to you. And in the process of that, you're going to uncover, you know, what vibes with you the most, what is your natural energy? What do you have to offer? And, and what's the, the most logical path for you, right? A, a lot of film composers come into the business having been touring musicians or recording arts, you know, that was my path or, or they studied classical music and they played in, in that world. And so I think the, the concept of I'm going to be a composer and study composition, it's a fairly modern idea that you can just go straight into that career path. And, and I really think, you know, you're better served by mastering piano and then becoming a composer and studying, you know, concurrently while you work and, and experience performing and experience music, right? Because you've got to speak music fluently. You've got to understand music and live music in order to be a writer that, that, that says anything of, of any meaning and consequence. So yeah, metaphorically go to Germany, you know, <laughs> as a musician. <laughs> That's it. Germany, not a Germany. sponsor of the podcast, but you could be. <laughs> yeah. Or Portugal or Italy, whatever metaphor, you know what I mean though, right? right? Like it's, it's like music is a language and it's, it's almost like a country. It's a culture, right? So, so be, be participating in that as much as you can. And sure. I think if, if I did one thing well as a young person, it was that I got my feet wet in a lot of different, different waters i suppose to extend the metaphor and I, I tried on a lot of things and eventually it led me to figuring out what the path was for myself right and so i'm, I'm glad all those experiences i have you know I, I didn't follow the the path to their logical conclusion as a career but they inform my practice now they inform my musicianship now as an adult so i have a lot to draw on when i sit down and create music i love that that's that's really good advice but both those things are really good advice Thank well you. um you mentioned your 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 singer songwriter project you're working on any, any other current projects going on, or you want to talk about that some more or like tell us what's, um, what's in the future. The main, the main project at the moment is my coaching business, which is called the pro composer. And uh, I have so many people that I'm working with and helping. And I also have a, a free Facebook community that has 5,000 people in it. And so I'm just kind of focused on building this up and, and uh, seeing how I can, you know, maximize the offerings I have and make the most impact. And so um, I'm kind of in a building season for that. I have a couple film projects that are probably going to come down the pipeline next year. And then, and I'm recording music for my singer songwriter project. And between all those things, I am pretty, pretty busy. 
And uh, that's the way I like it. I, I never seem to be able to sit still. Um, so we'll see how things go with the, the with the online business. And, um, you know, I'm hiring staff and, and building that up. And then hopefully I'll be able to keep running that concurrently and just have a sort of part-time, you know, sort of CEO overseeing of it while I'm, I'm dropping into to film projects. And uh, there's nothing I can talk about just yet because nothing's materialized, but uh, there should be a couple of really interesting indie films um, for me to work on in the next year. Very, very cool. Well, um, we end our podcast every time with the same thing. 10 very frivolous, nonsensical, not serious um, questions. Some of them are are uh, more more normal than others, and some of them uh, people, people just take a pass on. Um, okay. And also, I, I think that I have said many times it's 10 questions, and... I think sometimes it ends up being eight or nine because <laughs> I, I lose track and then I, you know, whatever, we're not going backwards, you know, <laughs> looking for right. I've gotten at least one message from somebody saying like, like this episode, you only asked eight questions. It's, oh, well, whoops. Season two, I guess we'll, we'll go back and do the other two. Um, so anyway, um, feel free to answer, uh, however you like with whatever detail you like, feel free to pass if you, if you okay. like as well. Um, do you have a do you have a favorite food? What's your favorite food? Um, I will have a curry any day of the week, and mm. I love Thai curries. I love Indian curries, and uh, I like to make them. And uh, recently, I, I I tried a new recipe because I grew some eggplants and was un, was uh, unexpectedly successful in my garden of producing a couple of eggplants. And I made an eggplant curry. It was absolutely dynamite. So um, I, I think I will love, I'll have a love affair with curry in the various ways it shows up um, until I die. Oh, I love that. Um, do you, um, do you have a favorite place you, you live in a very uh, picturesque place. Do you have a favorite place you like to vacation or visit? I don't know if I have a favorite place, um, but I, I will say that uh, a summer in which I do not swim in a lake in Canada is considered a failed summer. Mm. So I always try to at least get out to like, and, and now I do live in an area where there's lakes and rivers in abundance around me. So it wasn't too hard this year, but some years, you know, it can be a challenge, but I, uh, especially if I was traveling or, or living in LA, but um, the lake, we call it cottage country because people have these, we call them cottages, the summer homes on a lake in, in Ontario, my home province in Canada. And uh, that's always been a, a memory growing up of going to friends' cottages and and you know the the dock with the sunlight and the afternoon and cold drinks and jump in the lake and it's it's just a beautiful vibe. So I would I will say the Canadian lakes is my is my answer. I love that Canadian lakes. Not a sponsor of the podcast, but they could be. <laughs> there's um, there's like a million of them. There's so many of them. <laughs> do you have a do you have a favorite color? Yeah, I do actually. I and I'll go you one deeper because um, part of my work as a coach is like trying to. You know, trying to find little little hacks in your mind that 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 just cue you into creating the best music. And I have learned that the color that I really seem to resonate with is is like electric blue, like a light blue that's really vibrant. And I will try. I have like little decorations around my studio, and if I ever get like a bracelet from like a street vendor, I always go for this kind of like light sky blue or electric blue. And that's just the color of my. I I feel like it's the color of my energy, and Oof. so I, I I have it around me all the time. I love that. That's great. Um, what's what's the last thing, if you remember, what's the last thing you Googled? 
Um, maybe, maybe who is Jason Nitsch? I Googled the Grammy Awards today, and oh. uh, I was just looking at seeing who the nominees were. Because it just that. was just was announced. Yeah, it was. I feel like I've seen it on on Facebook. People already people celebrating their their nominations, which is very cool. Yep. Um, yeah, I need to check that list out too now, I guess. Um let's see. I'm gonna have to reformat this question, I think, a little bit. Okay. For you. Um let's see if if we were gonna have a big boxing match between two like stalwart film composers let's say let's say hans zimmer is gonna is gonna um is gonna box um gosh i don't know who who should hans zimmer box um probably somebody that's about about his age well, who would that are be we tr- are we trying to have like a is this a literal boxing match or are we trying to put artistic energies up against each other so I- I don't I don't like to I don't like to define the question that way. Some some people okay. have taken it different ways. Um well you know. I don't I don't want anybody to get hurt. And Hans is a you know, he's an he's an older guy, but he's got some fire to him. So well, okay, so we get we get Hans Zimmer and John Williams at a celebrity boxing match. Okay. You know, who 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 do you think wins? Who do you think wins the who wins the match? I mean, this doesn't say anything about how I how I feel about their music, but um, Hans has got about 20 years on John Williams and John Williams has always been known to be just, he's got just got gentle, sweet energy. And maybe, you know, I, I'm sure he's got some, he could summon something, but I think Hans is just a, a bit more of a fiery, aggressive mm. kind of guy. So I would be betting on Hans for that particular boxing match. That's good. That's a good, yeah, that's a good point. No, I, I think you're probably right. Does it does it change the equation if it's a cage match or is it the same? Like I feel <laughs> like it's it's the same if it's a cage. It's a cage match. I think I'm alerting the authorities to uh, you know <laughs> like a, a cruel and unusual situation in which I don't elder I don't want elder John abuse maybe. yeah elder elder abuse exactly yeah. I'm not suggesting that the two of them fight one another or that they have any kind of feud. I just think it's interesting in the abstract. See, I asked my band friends, is it Frank Tekeli or John Mackey? But I don't. I don't know if you uh, would know either of those two people. I do know who those guys are. Yeah, I would. I would again. I think John Mackey has has a a couple decades on Frank, doesn't he? Sure. So that would you know. That's a that's that's about it. Um, let's see. Now you're you're way up in you're way up in Canada. So so this is a really this is a really great question for you. Do do you sleep with your socks on or socks off? <laughs> um, usually off, but off. on a, a very cold night sometimes. Sometimes I might start with them on just because you're getting into bed and it's kind of can be chilly. I try not to run the heat like super hot. Mm. Um, then then they get then my feet get sweaty and then I just sometimes I just kick them off in the bed and then I I might even have a pile of them under the covers and I'm like oh there's all those socks so I guess I don't have a good <laughs> system for this just yet. I love that. Yeah, socks off. I don't I don't know. Yeah, me too. Um, if you were doing any other job other than what you're doing now, what do you think it, it would be like something not in music? Cause you could do many music jobs, something not music. Um, gosh, it really depends on the trajectory that my life took in this, you know, um, other dimension, but I always had a bit of an aptitude for art and drawing. And there's a, I, I could see myself getting into graphic design and that could have been another career path. It's kind of too late for, to go down that road at this point. But I could also be doing like 
like I'm good at marketing. I'm good at um, just writing. I could be a, I could be a lawyer. I'd probably be very good at that. I could be like a project manager. I would be good at that. You know, I guess it's a, one of the challenges I have is that there's, um, I have a, I'm good at lots of things. So it could be hard to narrow it down. So it, it really depends. It, it, um, it's funny, I, I could look back and like certain decisions led me down this path, but if I'd made other decisions, I could be a completely different person and probably doing pretty well and thriving and enjoying life. And maybe I would have, you know, a lot more money and success if I'd gone down. I could have been like, I was building websites when I was 14 by hand using HTML code. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'd gone into, into the computer scene, I might've built a dot-com company at age 21. That would have been in the height of the boom. And who knows, who knows, it could be a tech bro. You could have your own like space rocket company now, maybe. Oh my God. I know. Right. The missed opportunities. Missed opportunities. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. No looking back. But I don't have regrets about the path I'm on. It's been really rewarding and enriching and got to do a lot of really great things. And I've still got a lot of, lot to offer the world and a lot of excitement coming. For sure. No, absolutely. Well, um, I don't know if that was 10 questions or not, but we're, that's, we're going to, that's it. That's the end. Um, how can okay. people, um, how can people find you out there in the world, out on the socials or, or websites or any of that stuff? So I have a website for my film scoring, which is Uh If you want to check out my singer songwriter project, it's called gentle sparrow. So you can go to gentle sparrow music.com. And uh, if you want to learn about, the, the coaching business I have for film composers, or maybe you're a compos- composer and you want to get involved in scoring films. So I could, I can help you out with that. You could reach out to me through my, my coaching business. That's called the pro composer. So you can find me on the Very cool. Are you, uh, are, are you threading? Have what you done the thread? Uh, well, it's the new, um, it was, I don't know. It's kind of the new Twitter. <laughs> The new uh, Twitter is X. The different Twitter, the Facebook Twitter. Threads. Oh, threads. Yeah, clearly not. I'm not because uh, no. I didn't even know what you meant at first, but now I remember. No, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not on threads. I I tend to stay on Facebook a lot because I run a Facebook community for the Pro Composer, and that's where I do most of my social media. But I'm on Instagram. You can find me there as well. Yeah, I'm always curious about thread. I I signed up for threads, but I I forget it's there and I don't ever look at it. So I I guess I'm not really threading either. Right. So, well, uh, well, Robbie, thanks so much. Uh, I, I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking all this time with me. I hope that, that the listeners enjoyed, um, you know, hearing about your, your career and, and, and your advice that you have for everybody and, um, certainly wish you well in all your, all your future endeavors and, uh, hope we get to talk again sometime soon. Thanks so much, Jason. It's been great catching up with you and, uh, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if any of those people that we mentioned want to sponsor either one of us, we're both open to uh, to sponsorships. So just uh, just reach out to us on the socials. I'd be happy to get some microphones or or an invitation to a Canadian like. Um, anyway, Robbie Tian, everybody, thanks so much. And um, we'll see you next time on the, the next episode of uh, Composer Chat. Thanks for listening. Composer Chat is brought to you by SCM Media. Is your audience dead? Bring it back to life. And thanks to my guest this week, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to watch for next week's episode with the next composer on my list. And you can find my other podcast, Beyond the Belt, Adventures from the Outer Rim, a sci-fi drama, anywhere that podcasts are streamed. Listen free. Seasons one through three are out now. 
You can find me on Instagram at JasonNitch.Composer. You can find me on threads at JasonNitch.Composer. You can find me on the Facebooks if you're old like me, Jason K. Niche. You can find me on the web at JasonNitch.com or at BeyondTheBeltPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.